Welcome to this edition of Seen and Solve, presented by Hubbard Hall. Today, we're speaking with Jeff Davis, who is the Senior Vice President of Business Development and Distribution at Hubbard Hall. And today, sort of a part one of a two-part topic we're going to be talking about, a precision cleaning using solvents. And specifically, what is going to be your best option uh, as a shop? I'm Tim Pennington, and you're listening to Seen and Solve, brought to you by Hubbard Hall. Better results, less chemistry. Thanks for joining us today, Jeff. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I think it's um, a topic that is often discussed and uh, often confused, uh, confusing. It, so I think there's a real opportunity to hopefully to clear the air a little bit and to give people some some options and what the economic realities are of some of the uh, the different options that are out there on the table now. Yeah, it's definitely some confusion on some people because, like I said, regulatory issues have, have come to the forefront over the last couple of years. We've seen EPA sort of step up. Uh, take a, a, a bigger look at some uh, what's being used in manufacturing operations and such. Uh, and like I said, the last few years, uh, there's been a lot of um, sort of concern amongst a lot of shops. Uh, I'm not sure what you've been hearing from them about, you know, what's going to be not only what they can use today, but down the road, correct? They want to have the right processes, the right equipment, everything in place. Well, that's so what we're seeing is there's, there's a host of different alternatives now. And they're, they're Quite honestly, there have been for a long time, and they continue to evolve as regulations tighten and as equipment gets better and uh, the solvency and cleaning ability gets better of some of that equipment with the solvents. But right now, you're looking at uh, commercially available solvents. Um, there's a, a, a classification called halogenated solvents, and that includes, if you go back to your high school science and you think about the periodic table, there was a, a group of halogens, and that included chlorine, fluorine, and bromine. So you have chlorinated solvents, fluorinated solvents, and brominated solvents, all of which uh, have different characteristics that are suitable for degreasing and cleaning various types of components and substrates and, and contaminants. Um, and the, the beauty of those uh, 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 halogenated products is that they provide, um, they reduce the flammability or eliminate the flammability of some of the other constituents that are in the solvents. And then you have the hydrocarbons, which are basically, um, as you know, the name states, it's potentially a, a petroleum-based solvents that primarily are, are good for uh, bulk cleaning or gross cleaning and not necessarily precision cleaning because it, it leaves what they call a dirty clean, meaning it'll leave a rust preventative or RP behind the, the parts so that they can go on to other processes without having flash rust on the parts. So those are typically um, used in vacuum degreasers because they're combustible. Um, so you can't just put that in a vapor degreaser and boil those up and expect them to work unless you draw a vacuum where you can get the, um, the flash point below the boiling point. Mm -hmm. And then there's a classification fairly new in the last 20 years or so called modified alcohols that are really finding a niche in, in industrial cleaning and, and metal cleaning and for the solvent there is, it again is a combustible liquid, so it has to be also in a, um, a vacuum degreaser. And then you'll have, depending on the, the different um, feedstock or the, yeah, the, the components or equipment in the machine, is uh, other types of cleaning, mostly cold cleaning solvents or alcohols or things like that that do degrease or acetones or whatever, all of which um, have to be used under very strict um, controls and supervision because of the flammability. So that's primarily what's on the market today that's commercially available and that's um, 
reasonably priced, I should say, because there's a wide range of, of costs associated with those chemistries. Right, right. You know, it's funny is that, uh, you know, anybody who's really serious about um, uh, uh, cleaning and in, 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 the, in the parts finishing or coating industry, uh, they know that cleaning is the utmost important. It starts there. It's If not, it's going to cause problems down the road. Let's talk about cleaning in general, though. Uh, I think I just kind of restated my question to you. It, it's such an integral part, right? I mean, if these uh, dirts and, and materials are not taken off these parts, and, and a lot of shops don't even know what's really on uh, these parts when they get them. So it, it causes them con some concern. But, but why is it that these shops really need to take uh, the, the cleaning process seriously and really to know, you know, more importantly, what can go wrong if they do not uh, re remove the soils from these parts? Well, that, that's an excellent, excellent question because um, historically, um, if you're a, a job shop or a, or a captive shop, a job shop being one that gets paid to clean and finish parts, or a captive shop where it's just one process, potentially an automotive or an aerospace company, typically uh, it's not a value added step. I mean, no job shop gets paid for cleaning a part. They get paid for the finish on the part. So they have to get whatever contaminants are on the parts off um, as judiciously and affordably as possible. So you always have that underlying message of what's the least expensive way for me to clean these parts. And that's what it's been like for the last 50 or 60 years. So that's why there's always been, you go up the value chain. So the chlorinated solvents, right now you, you typically have methylene chloride, which has really kind of been really in a lot of disfavor, if you will, in the United States. I think that's an excellent paint stripper, but has all sorts of issues related to parts per million exposure and potential carcinogens. You have trichloroethylene and perchloroethylene. Um, those three are really the workhorses with tri and perk being the most um, available and the most uh, commercially viable parts. And typically, historically anyway, have been most affordable on the per pound cleaned. Then you go up that value chain into things like um, N-propyl bromide, which again is a halogenated solvent. Um, and that uh, is now coming under all sorts of issues and concerns, environmental regulations and, and limits on the exposure levels for employees. Uh, and then the next step up that value chain was modified alcohols. But then again, for those, you're concerned with um, the flammability or combustibility, I should say. So those have to be in a vacuum degreaser. Vacuum degreaser uh, adds multiples of cost to the cleaning operation because of that. So you're not necessarily going to clean low value parts in a very high high value um, solvent. And then you go up further up that uh, value chain into the fluorinated solvents. The fluorinated solvents going back, you know, 30, 40 years ago with Freon. You may be familiar with the Freon. Mm -hmm. Many derivations of fluorinated solvents over the years, whether it's uh, hydrofluoroethers or hydrofluoroolefins, various components that are mixed with chlorinated solvents. And what that fluorine does is it uh, lowers or eliminates the flash point of the, some of those solvents, improves the solvency, and, and really um, increases the price. Again, a magnitude greater than even the, uh, the modified alcohol. So it's kind of commercially today what's available. So in something that's a fluorinated solvent, you're probably going to clean something extraordinarily expensive or something where uh, failure is not an option. You know, I'm thinking of, of things like uh, medical devices, military, aerospace, where any contamination that's left on a part is, you know, 
it'll fail this fail the project or you don't want to have a uh, an implant put in your body that potentially has some contaminant on that part. So that's why they'll use different types of solvents. You know, it's funny, a couple of years ago, I, I think I went to two shows in Europe, a cleaning, and I know at that time, I was amazed at how serious they took cleaning in Europe. I, I know they've got a provision VDA-19 where, you know, parts being moved from one facility to another have to be cleaned. They have to be verified clean. Uh, you know, you've got a, a big market there for measuring that type of thing. But but really, in the U.S., uh, it's not really as, as strict, I think, as, as it is in Europe for, for some of those. And I've always heard that those restrictions or those new rules were going to be coming to North America, but they haven't yet. But it, it's no. it's sometimes hard, I think, for some owners to uh, you know, operators to understand, you know, how clean is a part? How, how, how well did we clean it? Because, again, if it's not going to be clean, you're going to run into adhesion problems, correct, uh, down the road. with Right. So a lot of companies... Um, the cleanliness, you're right. So you're talking about things that are automotive uh, approved or aerospace approved or ASTM approved. There's all different types of, of measures and ways they can test for the cleaning, uh, whether it's with something that, um, you know, we happen to get involved with a company for that does some of that, um, you know, cleaning and testing, testing of some of those parts. Um, but every company's got a little bit different classification, whether they're looking for ionic contamination or particulate contamination or, or water break finish. It, a lot of times it depends on what is the, um, how critical is the cleaning. Um, and like I said, if failure typically is not an option at all, you're gonna make sure those parts are spotless and clean and ready to go on to the next process. And that's, you know, so you're lumping, lumping a lot of cleaning, whether it's gross contaminants or cleaning particulate off of uh, um, fiber optics or you know, telescopes or parts that are really critical. Uh, so that becomes um, the metric, I guess, for those companies to decide how clean is clean. Mm -hmm. Right. And even then, like you said, you're going to have some residue, like we talked about, you know, some, some that are visible, some are not visible. And, and so it's, it's really, I think, uh, it, it's, it's such an important step in the whole process with that. But, but uh, let's talk about, like I said, with app, when applicators are looking for some of these characteristics, because you mentioned a lot of different processes. Uh, let's talk about the, the characteristics of each of those or specific cleaning processes. Uh, and you know, what do you think matters most? What, what is most important in your mind from all that you've seen? Well, typically, um, if you're talking about a, a, a contaminant, if you will, so you, you typically we need to know what contaminant you're trying to remove. Uh, is it a chlorinated oil? Is it something that's a, a, a very viscous, thick cosmoline type of, of contaminant? or is it just a, you know, light mineral oils? So I think what you're trying to determine is what is what will dissolve or remove the, the contaminant? Um, and are there two components? Are there polar and non-polar constituents? Do you have to have something that will, uh, will dissolve in water and the solvent can dissolve it as well? Um, so if you're looking at those, you need to know, first off, will that solvent dissolve the contaminant? And that's typically what a manufacturer or, or a supplier producer of some of those chemistries will determine, can our chemistry dissolve or remove the part, uh, the contaminant? Next can be is things like the boiling point can be critical. Uh, you're going to have the butanol value, meaning how, how, how aggressive is that solvent? Um, what's the surface tension of that, of that solvent? The lower the surface tension, the easier it is for those, that solvent to get in underneath potentially semiconductors or blind holes to try to get in there and flush out the uh, the contaminant, and typically the solvents have a, um, a 
surface tension that's probably uh, four times less than water. And even when you add uh, surfactants to water, solvents typically have a lower surface tension than that too. So, so it's not just um, being able to dissolve the part, but can you flush out the, the contaminant once it's been dissolved? And then you're going to get into the issues related to um, uh, do you need ultrasonics? I mean, a number of times ultrasonics can help. Do you need flushing? Do you need spray ones? All of these are, you know, people that have decided that solvents are the best way to clean. And, you know, sometimes, Tim, they're not. Sometimes water mm -hmm. and surfactants will work just as well. But you're going to have limitations potentially on floor space. Uh, a solvent system is kind of a, a plug and go. And if you have the floor space for, you know, a 10 foot by 10 foot degreaser, and it's electric, you can plug it in and be ready to go almost instantaneously. Whereas to do the same thing in a water-based or aqueous system, you, need, you may need you know, a 50, 60 foot long um, you know, series of baths to do the, the pre-rinse and the cleaning and the drying. So that can become an issue. And then obviously the, one of the biggest issues we see is, uh, is the water. In aqueous systems, water-based systems, if you put a contaminant in that water, you have to take it out before you get rid of the water. I mean, so that becomes an additional expense. And in solvents, the nature of the solvents is you continue to boil and condense and clean and recycle that solvent almost infinitely. As long as you maintain the stability, as long as you maintain the pH, that solvent can go on for, for almost indefinitely in the right circumstance. And we've seen customers that have had the same solvent running for years, but they maintain the solvent very well and the machine very well. Uh, so it's been a little bit less of an issue. Right. Right. So let's get into certain areas of, of the, the solvents that involve the testing and, and specs and approvals. Because, you know, you all have been, you know, providing these, making these uh, products for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what can you tell listeners about, you know, certain aspects of the products that you all have? Some of the uh, some of the cleaning products that uh, especially some of the newer ones that you all have developed over the last uh, couple of years or five years or so. Do you mean the, the solvent, the solvent? Uh, oh, okay. So the, yeah. So in the solvent realm, um, you know, we have, it's, it, it's interesting. We're having this conversation now because in the last year, a year ago, Tim, uh, there had been announcements that manufacturers of trichloroethylene, which is a real workhorse in the industrial cleaning and degreasing a real workout. It, it has cleaned it. It's not a, a really friendly chemical, but it has worked extraordinarily well for, for generations. Um, the problem was a year ago, one of the largest manufacturers decided to stop producing the solvent. So you took 50% of the global demand, I'm sorry, supply off the market and left the demand alone. So obviously availability and price went through the roof. And what we started to find was um, people weren't sure, they thought trichlor was trichlor was trichlor. And Right. And it's not. I mean, it has to be stabilized and it has to be, um, you know, you have to manage that that solvent. You have to make sure it's operating properly. So we had many large customers that were buying Asian um, trichlor that wasn't stabilized. The problem is if it's not stabilized, that solvent, if you stress that solvent into a greaser with water and with contaminants and with um, different types of soils, the solvent will go acid. So once the solvent mm -hmm. is acid, that will then start to degrade the, the machinery, you know, put holes in the you know, hydrochloric acid pitting the stain in the machine. And then you have to then dump the machine and refill it and potentially, uh, you know, get a new machine. So, so what we've seen is we've developed a double stabilized solvents 
for that reason. So our objective here now is we're not looking to replace people's solvent. We're trying to find them ways to um, maintain the solvent in the machine, make sure it's stabilized and it's tested and you have the right constituents in there all the time. So that's really been a kind of a remake for us in the whole industry, going from a volume-based industry to now it's like you have to you be smart about this because you may not be able to buy more product. And that's where we are today, is uh, trying to find ways and communicating to our customers. In the, Historically, we'd say, you know, dump the machine and put fresh solvent in. Now we're saying, don't dump anything. Test it. Make sure the stuff is, is still viable and we can restabilize it and hopefully continue to use what you have. So. That's an entire, that's a 180 flip from where we were a number of years ago. Right, right. You, you talk about how people need to be smarter. So let me ask you just a question of uh, operators, shop owners, uh, manufacturing operations. What questions should they be asking themselves and also asking their customers to determine what it is that they should be using? I mean, it, it seems like certainly you want it, they should be evaluating it constantly or, or frequently, but what should they be asking themselves uh, you know, as far as their uh, processes, their physical plant, do we have the room? Uh, what do we need? Uh, what, what are some things that you would advise them? Well, it's, it's an excellent question, Tim. I, I think what we've seen is uh, you need to audit your system. You need to go through there with, a, with an unbiased eye and say, okay, let's look at every one of our departments and why do we clean? And it's not just because we've always cleaned. I mean, do you have to clean before you go to the next process? Do you have you tested are the all the soils and, and the the oils you're trying to remove from the parts still the same? I mean, so make sure you go through and and like you're starting from scratch, and say mm -hmm. this part has to be cleaned to this specific um, cleanliness test, and then it can go on to the next step, or maybe it doesn't. And that's what we found a lot of times is maybe you have a, a rust preventative you leave on the part, it can go through a number of processes without being clean. But if it does have to be cleaned, um, have you tested the equipment? Does the equipment leak? Is the equipment, um, are there any odors near the equipment? Uh, do you have any water leaking out of the any of the, uh, the cooling coils or the refrigeration? I mean, a, a thorough maintenance of the equipment that you have. Um, and then ask your your um, the provider of the chemistry, um, is the stuff stabilized? Is it double stabilized? Do you have um, stabilizers and additives and boosters, test kits, and all of the, it's almost like if you have a pool at your house and once it's filled up and, you know, in, in June, the pool looks great. And then round about July 4th towards August, say, boy, it doesn't look quite the same anymore. Well, have you tested it? I mean, because it doesn't typically go bad immediately. I mean, you're going to notice some something going down. You're going to notice that you know, there's a reason why you have the test kits and the additives you put into your pool. It's the same thing with a vapor decreaser, with the solvents. The only difference is you really necessarily can't see the solvent. You see the results of the solvent. You can see pitting on the on the metals, or you can see uh, you can see cloudy vapors, all of which indicate there's water or some kind of contaminant in the solvent. So, I would get with your uh, your maintenance people and your plant people and do a, a complete audit of your process and see: Do we need to clean number one? Are we using the right chemistry? And how old is the equipment? Because I've seen equipment out there that's still running today that's 50 years old. Mm. And so it's been maintained, you know, it's pristine, but it's not as efficient as it used to be. So I think, you know, as, as people are going on, the investment in new machinery can be exorbitant. 
Um, and it's hard to get people to justify why am I spending so much money on a new machine if, uh, if I'm not sure the chemistry is going to be around much longer. And that's a very uh, viable and valid question. Right. Right. You know, it's funny when I go into a shop, I usually get, you know, the, the owners will take me around. They'll introduce me to the zinc manager, uh, the, the nickel manager, the powder coating manager. I've never met a cleaning manager. <laughs> it doesn't seem like. And and I've, I've, I've often wondered that. It seems like that is such an important step that they don't have somebody who's that's their specialty in this. Well, you but Tim, you go you go into those shops and you're talking to every department, every manager that makes money. Right. Right. <laughs> Or they're putting out a lot of finished products, correct? Right. So it's like, so it's like the cleaning's assumed. I mean, it's a it's in a lot of cases it's a necessary evil. But when you do your your due diligence and look, you know, if you have an issue, you go back and say, how come we're not getting the proper plating or powder coating or black oxide finish? And it goes, you take it all the way back to the cleaning step, and then you see that's where the change has been. The machinery and the equipment is not as pristine as it used to be. And it doesn't always, it doesn't always get the maintenance. It's not as vigorously maintained as your money making plating or powder coating line. Right, right. Well, devil's advocate. Uh, cleaning may not make you money, but it sure will cost you a lot of money if it's not done correct. I mean, it's it's you know, anytime I've seen heard a lot about rejects and things, it usually goes back to they had an incorrect system uh, for cleaning it, or they didn't know what was on there. Cutting fluids were changed. They had to go back to their customer and say what happened here. You know, and, uh, and and they find out that something changed and they really weren't on top of it. So, again, it's I think a lot of those uh, facilities really need to probably put somebody on this almost semi full time. Would you? Like I said, it, it's never been like it, it's almost like wastewater, right? Because wastewater right. treatment, no one really thinks they need it until they can't. You know, the, the local POTW has shut you down because you're discharging chemistry and then you realize, oh, the only way I can keep working is if I get that fixed. Same thing with the cleaning. I mean, so you're talking about things that are, they're necessary. Um, and I think the the time that you spend to correct some of those issues can pay dividends. You just don't see them potentially until it's too late. Right. Right. Uh, you know, you talked about the last couple of years, things have been changing a lot. Can you progress in out a couple of years? Uh, what do you see happening? What do you, what do you, what's your, your sense of a trend coming? It's interesting to me because um, there are the, the vapor degreasing chemistry that's being used. And I, I take that all the way back to methylene chloride. When I started uh, in this industry a long time ago, uh, they were going to outlaw methylene chloride. Mm. And that was, a, you know, in the in 1980s. Well, they still sell methylene chloride. They still make methylene chloride. It's still used in the right equipment. It's not preferred, but for some things, it's, it does a very good job. So I think if you look back, there these have always been things that are low-hanging fruit to, that people want to eliminate for various reasons. And I think it's, it's all admirable. I think there's uh, it's a balancing act. I mean, I would not want to live near a facility that was mistreating or, or not handling chemistry properly, mm -hmm. as no one would, right? Because we all have mm -hmm. to live there. Uh, so I, I think the balancing act is in the right equipment with the right maintenance and the right facilities, you can use the right chemistry. That being said, there are new regulations or proposed regulations on the exposure levels of, of trichloroethylene. Uh, and there's there's a couple of schools of thought. So there is OSHA, which is the enforcement body of, uh, of the federal government. And then there's the ACGIH, the American Conference of Industrial Hygienists, 
that make recommendations to OSHA on, on what the exposure level should be for different solvents. And now you have, in the most recently, the last couple of years, um, EPA has said there's, there's um, uh, non, what do they call it, uh, unreasonable risk of exposure, for, especially for trichloroethylene. So that's under fire now as well. It's going through a, a process of, uh, of public comment right now. And I think in, 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 um, in version two or episode two we do with, with Ed and Barbara, uh, they're very well versed in the state of the state of those things. Uh, and they can give you the you know the pulse of what's happening today with some of that the, uh, stat, the statutes related to the solids. Gotcha. Well, again, as we as we wrap up here, we are going to be doing a part two with Ed and Barbara, two longtime experts uh, in the uh, uh, critical and precision cleaning uh, process, who 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 do know a lot, doing a lot, and then I know that they've actually been. Uh, working very closely with the EPA on a couple of things. So that'd be very interesting. But, uh, sure. but again, uh, thank you for your time, uh, for telling us all that. And I guess, again, if we haven't confused some shop owners now, <laughs> I hope we haven't, but they can certainly give you give you all a call because it seems like you can walk them through, like you said, do the audit. I think that's very critical. Well, you, you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. And I, and I think, and I, I say this, I say this to most of our customers, I understand a lot of customers, a lot of people that use some of this chemistry don't necessarily want to volunteer and raise their hand to tell the world they're using some of these things. But, you know, I think work with uh, Hubbard Hall or or any of your suppliers that, that you trust and, and have them do an audit of your process to see what you really need. Right. And another set of eyes. Those always seems to uh, it's I've heard from so many shoppers when they get somebody in there, a trusted supplier who gives them another set of eyes and they trust it, and it's always seems to work out for the best with them. So, well, again, Jeff, thank you for thank you for joining us today. People can can uh, get more information at hubbardhall.com. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. All right, take care. Seen <laughs> and Solved is brought to you by Hubbard Hall. Better results, less chemistry. For more podcasts, go to hubbardhall.com or wherever you get your podcasts.